This is GamesAtWork.biz, your weekly podcast about gaming, technology, and play. Your hosts are Michael Martin, Andy Piper, and Michael Rowe. The thoughts and opinions on this podcast are those of the hosts and guests alone and are not the opinions of any organization which they have been, are, or may be affiliated with. This is episode 443, In the Stone. It's Friday. I'm Michael Rowe, and it is time to talk tech, gaming technology, and fun with my dear friends and co-hosts, Michael Martin and Andy Piper. Andy, how the heck are you? Hi, Michael. I'm well. I'm in a hotel room today, so a slightly unusually recording situation, and hopefully you're going to hear me okay. But uh, yeah, I'm doing great. I'm glad to have you both back, and uh, over to you, Mr. Mar- Martin. Thanks so much, Andy. Boy, you, you really did a fantastic job holding down the the fort here while we were all doing the uh, the trip to fame thing in the U.S. Boy, do we have a great set of material here to talk about. So we've got a number of AI stories to start us off here. And the first one is a, a story that we've seen repeated once or twice in the last year or so uh, about AI writers, especially related to sports. And in this case, we have an article from Futurism about Sports Illustrated, um, who has AI-generated writers that once it was pointed out that they were AI writers, they all sort of disappeared. Um Sports lends itself really well to AI because you can have a decent large language model and sort of general things that you talk about. Uh, but um, it would make a lot of sense to let people know that the uh, author is either an AI or it's a real person, wouldn't it now? Yeah, I remember hearing a story probably six months or more ago about a service that was being developed for this exact purpose in order to get uh, coverage of the local sports, you know, high school sports teams, etc., into the newspaper. I hadn't realized that uh, Sports Illustrated was also using some of the same type of services. Uh, but for those areas where people are just not investing enough anymore to cover the reporting that's necessary, it's I think it's okay to use it as long as you let people know that's what's going on. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Um, so what, what I expect us to see a whole lot more of this, you know, given all the agents that we've been talking about here for a while, but this is a, an intriguing lead off article for sure. And it really clicks in very nicely to Andy, some of the material that you'd covered in your solo show last week uh, from Corey Doctorow on the real AI fight and what's what's really going on right now and this kind of uh, um, conflict, if you will, between what what they're being called the uh, effective altruism or, or doomers in the way it's kind of put there or the effective accelerationism kinds of folks. What was your take on reading this? Uh, Yeah, I think it was a really good piece. And I think it spoke a lot to the point I raised last week about the the safety, you know, the safety brake being disabled on a lot of this stuff. So people wanting to move faster, wanting to um, skip past a lot of the inconvenient questions that are being asked. Um, so there's this idea of accelerationism to really kind of move us forward as quickly as we can. Um, 
uh, yeah, I thought thought it was a really interesting way of describing it, and, and it was also incredibly depressing that there's this kind of macho argument going on in Silicon Valley, as as the, the argument goes here between these two schools of thought. And there's there's a ton of detailed articles that are linked into this particular blog post. So do point your browser over to the show notes afterwards, because uh, taking a look at the various uh, people who have also weighed in on this is worth reading um, uh, across a variety. I'm I'm just looking here at there's at least twelve different uh, links that it looks like that are in here from other places. Um, continuing on that same theme. Uh, we have talked about on the show here before about the Sarah Silverman structure where her book was apparently or allegedly being used in large language model training, and she brought suit against it. And there was a lot of ink or digital ink uh, spilled by by real journalists on this particular subject. And it was uh, surprising to me here that in the, um, uh, in the court where she had taken this forward, that her complaint has actually really been kind of skinny down as to what can be accepted and what needs to be proved in order for her to bring it forward. Um, were, were you guys likewise surprised or, or did, did this come as like, yep, expected that? Yeah, I think I, I think most stories along this path, right, do tend to get overly simplified um, and skinny down, as you describe it. I, I do find this article a little bit more informative on how the data is ingested uh, and explaining a little bit more the complexities of of how some people may or may not even realize that they're consuming uh, copyrighted works inside their large language models. Um, so it, it's interesting to see the details spelled out here. Uh, I, I don't know if it changes my opinion on the whole issue that's being brought up, right? So uh, whether it was consumed knowingly or unknowingly uh, consumption of copyrighted material without the right release in place should be inappropriate for the training of a large language model. I, 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 it, it has changed my opinion on this whole space because I've been a lot more interested now in, in, in this particular case. Now, first of all, the very first paragraph of this article points out that although Sarah Silverman is the most recognizable uh, plaintiff here, um, and the one that's coming in all the uh, in the headlines is actually a, a, a three uh, a three co plaintiffs there. So Richard Cadry and Christopher Golden are also involved. I thought this particular article on the Neiman Lab website gave a, gave a really good breakdown, and so did the judge's um, ruling or judge's um, response to the to the lawsuit in terms of breaking down what some of Michael just said about how the data is being, you know, what comes out of the large language model and what's in there. Um, I think when I first heard about this, I think the I was interested in the way that it was affecting these authors or these authors were pulled into it because their work had been included in this pirated data set, which evidently, you know, there's been very little 
care or attention paid to figuring out the whether or not it should have been there in the first place, right? Um, I thought it was really interesting the way that it, it describes the um, substantial similarity stuff and the um, the derivative works. I thought that that has changed my opinion of of whether or not there is more are more questions to to answer here to make me any less concerned for creatives whose works are being used in this way without potentially without any kind of remuneration well that i mean that's that's what i mean by it didn't change mine at all right i i think they should renumerated uh the the generation of material that's based off of even if it's only loosely identifiable back to it right um if the model itself ingested inappropriate copyrighted material then I think they're exposed immediately at that point, right? Um, they do not have the license or the rights to use that material, whether to generate derivative things or similar si- similar derivative things. I think that's there's another statement further down in this article that says, if that is the legal bar, that an AI yep. must produce outputs identical or near identical to existing copyrighted work to be infringing, dot, 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 that goes on. Well, I think... That skips forward a couple of links in our in our uh, run of show towards some of the flaws that have been identified in the, in recent weeks um, that have been written about. Yeah, no, 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 no. My definition of of similar or or derivative, I think, is probably much more loose. I don't know if it would be loose or strict, <laughs> but if. If you think about the history of the creative process, uh, the creative process has grown because of derivative works, period, right? Uh, If you go from uh, various traditional musics into blues, into rock and roll, into modern pop, right? Uh, And that's just a real simple growth simplification there. That's all allowed, uh, however, here, here's another challenge. Um, if we go back to pre-copyright times uh, and we go back to the, the stories of the Brothers Grimm uh, and then other fairy tales that got turned into Disney blockbuster, blockbuster uh, cartoons, um, I've always had a problem with the fact that the originals are, could not be protected by copyright. And that once you created that protected material called, uh, oh, let's call it Sleeping Beauty, uh, that that there are issues there too, right? So I, I think we have a very uneven-handed method for applying copyright and what's derivative and what is not. So if someone creates a derivative against the original story of Sleeping Beauty, not the Disney version, I guarantee you today Disney would still go after them. And I, I, I want us to get to a point where we have a common method across the various different ways of attributing works to prior works and to compensating appropriately. Yeah, uh, that, that sounds like a, an appropriate conversation and a great one for us to have, too. And, and I'd say before we move on, um, the th- thought that struck me was derivative works as such are related also to the notion of a, of a human as a computer, 
and our brains and material that we read or hear or see can influence what a human creates or paints or makes music of at some point in the future. And it becomes really, really difficult to identify, hey, you know, when I heard of the uh, fairy tale around Mädchenfelsen, uh, is, is that something that now influences a, uh, a game that I want to design that has elements of that in it? Well, the, the good news is that eventually you're just going to be a battery in the machine's uh, world. And the only way that those things will be noticed is as glitches in the matrix. Well, I'm sorry. That's already copyrighted. You can't talk about that. <laughs> he was just referencing under fair use. Come on. So we're, we're talking about GPT. We're talking about um, large language models. And we have an article here to move us along from Tech Radar uh, talking about the particular model that Intel and the U.S. government are working on that they are uh, supposedly calling something like uh, Science GPT to be able to leverage that level of content um, and supposedly attribution, maybe, I don't know, uh, in a way that allows for more rapid um, scientific generation going into the future. Yeah, I, I think every day I see, you know, not every day, but every time I see a story like this, uh, we just go further and further down the path of Accelerando, um, the book where every patent was pre-patented. <laughs> uh, but, but realistically, when I, when I look at this, I do think it's a good idea that we are leveraging the public good using public sources that we paid for as taxpayers uh, to, to build out a model that can, le can be used to improve our scientific understanding or potentially improve, improve it. I, I think this is a great thing that they're doing. So this one being a government related, U S government related uh, thing, would all of the outputs be therefore public domain and open to the U S taxpayer? But by definition, uh, inventions and other data created by the U S government paid for by taxes are supposed to be publicly available. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the other interesting things about the open AI story. And again, I've talked about this mm -hmm. at some length last week, which was that it was originally named open in an, the context of open source and open data. And yet it's now become even more privately focused and profit focused because of the get, getting rid of the public good elements of the, of the board. And I think that probably having something like this if that is indeed what this can become, this science GPT concept and, and being some kind of publicly accessible model would be a good thing. I think um, the next story we have on CNBC about the OpenAI competitors, um, in particular, Hugging Face, which is open source, um, getting a lot more calls and client interest after the fiasco at OpenAI, Mm -hmm. I say fiasco, though that's a word from this article rather than my word. Um, <laughs> the drama. You, you didn't create that yourself. No. No, I would say the drama at OpenAI. Um, and I've long been interested in Hugging Face and um, and the open source opportunities. I know that the Open Source Initiative has just uh, published another iteration of their uh, proposed open source definition for uh, AI models. Um, 
so yeah, I think this is really, really important. It's a really, really important thing that we have the opportunity as a species and for the sake of competition and the sake of global progress that it's not all under one commercial umbrella that's owned by one entity, in my opinion. Well, we know from the costs of creating large language models that only large enterprises are going to be able to secure the necessary hardware and have the funding to go do these sorts of things. So governments, large-scale open source, or other companies, Cohere is mentioned in this article as well, are the ones going to be able to do it. And spanning now an arc of a couple of episodes, as I listened to last week's show, the thing that struck me is, is that each of these large language models cannot be self-referential. They have to hungrily, greedily, we'll use that word too, because it's a nice little word you can use in in your in your designing of prompts, um, acquire additional content and information. And those models are only going to be worth something if you can add and, and continue to acquire new content to keep training them. They need to add the, your t- technological and biological uh to the collective. All right. So moving uh, from from the esoteric and and the space to something a little bit more concrete, uh, Andy, you've got a pair of articles here about a three D printed house and what's happened to it. Yeah. Um, so there'll be both two articles from Hackaday, and they they had an f- interesting juxtaposition across two days this week. <laughs> um, the first one, the, the headline is Iowa demolishes its first three D printed house, and I know Michael Rowe came back to me and said, um, this makes me sad. But if you read into the story, I mean, yes, it sounds sad, right? Oh, they built a 3D printed house and now they're demolishing it. Actually, it's an interesting story. They've started building this house, printing this house in May this year, and they were going to build another nine. And they're building them out of a biocomposite called hempcrete. Um, But... In fact, what the um, problem was here was that the tests um, didn't live up to the um, effectively the, 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 the compressive strength of the material. So mm-hmm. they've knocked it down or they're knocking it down again, but they're going to come back with a hempcrete uh, uh, that's going to be of the right capacity to actually build the structure. So um, I think it's kind of more of an iterative process that is being described. I would suggest Dude, not building you're it in a house. Yeah, I would really suggest not building it in a swamp, though. Right, right. Yeah. Oh, well, well, hemp is basically kind of like a straw. Maybe they ought to use sticks this time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the second story is a nice juxtaposition, and I, I read this one last night. I thought it was really, really fun. So it's about an autonomous ex- excavator. So a, a you know a, a, a digger truck uh, uh, that is. Um, building a wall and the way that it's doing it is it's doing it using software that is detecting uh, as it picks up each rock it's algorithmically deciding where to put the stones so it's got machine vision that is being used to actually grab and assess the stones and the shape and their weight and center of gravity and then figuring out where to put them without using any mortar so this is now this is building of dry walls, which has been happening in certainly in the UK and England in, 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 since ancient times. Um, the construction of dry walls has been a, a kind of a, a craft over centuries by farmers and others. Um, but this is doing it at a gigantic scale using machine vision 
and um, and I like to figure out how to do it with a with a gigantic machine. It's great. I. I- I love this too because in North Carolina here in Chapel Hill, uh, it's famous for the low stone walls here in our town. Uh, not that you would build them quite this way, but um, and it's not nearly as ancient as as those built by the Romans, but it's kind of cool that way too. And what did the Romans ever do for us? Yeah, I, I ask that question constantly. Well, Andy. besides the aqueducts <laughs> and the Ides, you know, I can't can't live without the Ides. Ren's bladder. We've got a couple of last articles that we want to get to because we're nearly running out of time and it's all related to some uh, uh, historical computing and games. And um, the first of those was from Terrence Eden, who postulated what would happen if computers never got any faster. Um, Because we know that when you run some emulators in certain cases, uh, your games are unplayable. You just can't do them anymore. So what I loved about this article is that Terence, who's a good friend of mine, did this but through the reference point pointer of games consoles, uh, as well as also space machines, space uh, machines we, we've talked about, right? But uh, he talked about the fact that by the end of the lifespan of, let's say, the Sega Mega Drive, if you, you know, when you first got it, you have games that look like this. But by the end of the lifespan of that thing, because there were no over-the-air updates to it over the course of its lifespan, because it wasn't connected to the internet. Um, you only have the hardware constraints of the machine. Developers have become so good at exploiting the, the complete hardware that you know you, you have this almost generational step change in the quality of the software. Um, the the space references when you know we we talked about this not not too long ago where they've been updating the Voyager probes remotely, mm-hmm. um, even though they're running you know decades old hardware. Um, so I think it's a really interesting thought experiment to say, what if things were frozen in time at a hardware level and uh, we didn't just rely on Moore's law to, to continue, well, which we can't anymore anyway, um, to continue to grow our capabilities. Yeah, I, I love that point. And that was just really fantastic about uh, over-the-air upgrades making a big difference. <laughs> Not just here on Earth. Uh, what about DOS deck? How about that? I loved it. <laughs> I've installed it on my Steam Deck. Well, I've, I've, I've set I've up a browser, set up a browser to open as a in kiosk mode on my Steam Deck, and you get instant access to these DOS games. And I was talking to somebody at a conference or at an event last night about how crazy it is. You can now boot an entire DOS machine in a web assembly in a browser and have it run and work and. Yeah, it's great. Oh, I didn't see that 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 they had Epic Pinball in there too. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it it was great. I mean, I I started just start going through each of the games, and it saves your state <laughs> and in like in a cookie, you know. So you if you're on the same machine, you go back to where where you left off straight away. So 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 Andy, with this, you could actually run Doom on a computer. What's that? <laughs> Who'd want to do that? I'd much rather rather run it on a pregnancy test. <laughs> now you're just talking silly. Don't don't even mention that anymore. I know. Doom on a computer. <laughs> All right. So so wrapping things up for the day. Um, we're not going to talk about wine. We're going to talk about whiskey. And and I I've not tried this yet. Have either of you? Have not. I have not. So the short short version. It's allowing you to play games uh, much like you would with wine in the Mac environment and rock and roll or call people or do stuff. It's fun. It, it looks like it's just kind of a, a, a UI wrapper around the stuff that Apple announced at WWDC this last year uh, to allow for porting of, of games. 
but I've not had a chance to look at it in detail. More retro games is a good thing. And it's available in Polish and French now, according to release 2.2.1. Very good. All right. Well, with that, everybody, I think we'll bid everyone a civil adieu. And uh, we'll join you again here next time on gamesatwork.biz. See ya. See ya. You've been listening to gamesatwork.biz, the podcast about gaming technology and play. We are part of the Blueberry Podcasting Network and would like to thank the band Random Encounters for their song, Big Blue. You can follow us on Twitter at gamesatwork underscore biz or at our website at gamesatwork.biz. Gamesatwork.biz.